I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 18. Uh, We've been doing a series of messages out of this book, and the title of our sermon today is, Who Really is Behind All This? And in light of all of the amazing things that are happening in our world today, we sometimes wonder, you know, I've had people say, it just seems like our world is falling apart. But I want you to know there's someone who's got it in his hands. And that's what we need to get a hold of in our hearts and minds. I'm, you know, one of the things I do for uh, my personal enrichment is I listen to lectures from university professors while I'm working out. I know, some of you are probably thinking, why is he doing that? But I just love to do that. And I'm listening to a series of lectures on utopia and dystopia. And you're going, what is that? Well, utopia means uh, perfect place, but if you look at the etymology of the word, it means no place, because there's no perfect place except for in heaven, right? But, you know, there's a desire and a longing in the human heart to have a perfect world. And I believe that's from God, because we will one day inherit a perfect world with a perfect leader, and his name is Jesus. And also, I think that these... uh, this whole situation of you know, utopia and dystopia is just the very opposite of that, is expressing the nature of human anxiety and the fears that we struggle with in our society. And I believe that we're living in an age of anxiety. And there's a lot of fear today. People are just rift with fear and anxiety. So one of the most well-known writers in this literary genre of uh, Utopian literature is a man by the name of Orson Welles. Some of you probably are familiar with Orson Welles. And he wrote a very uh, noteworthy book called 1984. So he wrote the book in 1948. What he did is he reversed the last two numbers. And what was really challenging about that, you know, 1984 is only about 30 plus years later. And he was writing at a time called the Cold War. There was a lot of anxiety. People were concerned right after World War II that people would hit buttons and nuclear bombs would fall on different cities. And people were living at that kind of level of anxiety, a level they'd never known before. And so he was writing along this line and describing a sense of the feeling of powerlessness that the individual had in a world where they felt their world was not in control. Isn't that interesting? But we're going to talk about who really is behind all of this. Now, in these lectures by Dr. Pamela Bedore, she's written a course called The Great Utopian and Dystopian Works of Literature. She says in her course guidebook, 1984 embodies the power of language to shape thought for good or for ill and explores the devastating potential of language to destroy both personal and cultural identity when used to preserve a totalitarian system of government. And so we had that phrase, big, bu- big brother, come out of that book. Big brother's watching over you. And so people live with that sense that, you know, uh, there's no level of privacy anymore. We got all of this invasion into our lives. And then I believe that many people today are deeply concerned, and rightfully so, that there will be a suppression of speech. We can easily develop anxieties over what our future holds. Yet the greater question that I want to raise today is simply... But who really is behind everything? I mean, if we pull back the curtain in The Wizard of Oz, it's not going to be just some little guy controlling the little hand things and terrifying the world. No, actually behind this world and sustaining this world is our loving creator, redeeming God. And that's what we need to see today. So we're going to look at this uh, situation. In the scriptures, we know that we're not battling with flesh and blood. 
So we know that there's a spiritual battle happening, and I think that's what we see a lot, and we forget it. We have a spiritual adversary who's trying to destroy humanity, but we're going to discover in Jeremiah that God is ultimately in control. He's the one who is shaping the destinies of nations as well as individual lives. And in Jeremiah 18, we discover the God who raises up and brings down nations. And I want to declare to you today that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all nations. And in the book of Jeremiah, we're going to see that as we continue journeying, that there is a word that Jeremiah gives not only to Israel, but to many of the nations at that time in which he was living. Even though God allows freedom of choice, choice is all framed between what is best, which is his will, and the opposite position, which is rejecting God's path, and then we experience the ensuing consequences of that. God gives us opportunities to discover his ways, which I believe ultimately brings hope. Hope is a very powerful commodity. It brings life, it brings peace, it brings joy. Or we can choose to live an autonomous life and strike out on our own and discover that the path we've chosen is strewed with many significant challenges and also diminishing resources. So as we see nations live autonomously apart from God, we're beginning to see the diminishment of resources. It all falls hand in hand. People don't always see the dots. They don't always connect them. But that's exactly what happens. And so here in Jeremiah 18, God is going to lead Jeremiah to a very interesting place. He's going to lead him to the potter's house because he's going to dramatize for Jeremiah exactly how God is the one who's in control of people's lives and control of the nation. So I want to take a look at uh, three things that we're going to discover in this chapter regarding God's divine sovereignty. In other words, who really is in charge? And how do we respond to that? And what, how, what kind of an effect will that have upon our lives if we make an autonomous choice? How, what kind of a consequence does that bring into our lives? So let's take a look at the first uh, point here, which is simply... Uh, some of the things we discover regarding God's message regarding sovereignty. It's a very big theological question. We're going to address some things that I think people have been struggling with and wondering about. So I'm going to, we're going to start by the illustrated message of God's sovereignty when Jeremiah goes to the potter's house and the reality of it. So first of all, I would just say that God is in control of all that's happening in our world. He's in charge. Ultimately, underneath it all, God is, God is moving our world to a definitive destiny. We're moving to a, a certain endpoint, And we need to understand that we also, as human beings, are impacting our world negatively sometimes by the wrong and sinful decisions that we make. But I want to just encourage us. Even though we do the wrong things, God can take even the most significant uh, evil of the world and turn it around and use it for his purpose. And I'm going to give you an example, probably the greatest example of how God can change and turn an evil thing to become a, a good thing in the end. I'll give you an example. When, when humanity came and we, cru and we crucified as human beings the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God coming to earth, all he did was good and we crucified him. That was the greatest evil. You know, 
Can you think of that? And what does God do with the greatest evil? He turns it around, uses that event, and three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, and that was actually the event that defeated the powers of darkness and also created the avenue where we could defeat sin and shame and ultimately death for the human race. Isn't it amazing how God used the greatest evil, turned it around, and is gonna use, and he's using it and will ultimately use it for the greatest good. That's the confidence we need to have when we look at our world today and it seems like the wheels are coming off. I want you to see underneath are the everlasting arms. God is the one that's holding this world together. You know, I think the, uh, the African uh, spiritual, you know, he's got the whole world in his hands. What a beautiful thought. He's got you and me, uh, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. God has got the whole world in his hands. We need to get a vision of the ability of God to sustain our world and to help us walk through the most challenging moments that are going to confront our lives. So the other thing I, I think we see is a lot of times we struggle with some of these things because, you know, we question if God is in control and God is good, then why does he allow evil? Isn't that a great question? And people ask it all the time. You know, it's always brought to our attention. I think it's a question people wrestle with. And some people try to say, well, the reason we have evil, it's all the devil's doing. He's the instigator of it. Like somehow there's this great cosmic battle between God and Satan, okay? But I want to just point out, God is not in a, in a contest. Um, is that, maybe I don't have that PowerPoint. That's okay, we'll come back. But God is not in a contest uh, with him. You know, life is not a contest between God and Satan, with humanity in the middle. That's not what's happening. That's a, that's a false picture. That's a dualism that is, a, is actually a philosophical Greek idea that was embedded into Christianity, but it's not the correct viewpoint. Matter of fact, I want you to see it this way. God is an infinite being. Satan is a finite being. God has all power, Satan has limited power. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't have power, but God has all power. And actually, Satan can only do what God allows. Isn't it interesting? Well, then you'll have some other people say, well, yeah, that's true, Pastor, but what happens as believers, we do the wrong things and we allow Satan to have you know, entrance and take authority in our lives, and there's a truth to that. But I'm gonna stop us because, you know, yes, Satan uses human rebellion. But however, as I've already pointed out to you, God ultimately incorporates even that to accomplish his purposes. So he, it says, and I read it last week in Proverbs, that God says, I even use the wicked to accomplish and fulfill my purposes. So let's not you know, give more credit than what's due. And let us not live in terror because of sin or Satan or because of our own human weakness. Begin to have a higher view of God. I think that's one of the biggest problems in the church world today. We have a very low view of God. We need to elevate it. We need to see God as he really is. God is the supreme being. God is the infinite, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God. Let's get a hold of that. And that God is actually moving humanity towards our ultimate destiny in spite of our sin and weaknesses and rebellion, in spite of Satan and all the fallen angels. God is gonna prevail, folks. And we need to know that. And so behind all of the things that are happening, God is behind it. So let's, let's go over here to Jeremiah chapter 18, and we'll take a look at what's happening in this chapter, because this is all going to come out. I'm giving you that introduction, because I want us to really get the theme in our minds. Okay, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 
Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. How many know you got to obey God in order to receive the message? So he does. He goes down to the potter's house, and he says, I saw him working at the wheel. I was going to have someone here with a potter's wheel today and, and have them just be doing it. You know, they're working on pottery. Can you just imagine that for a minute? Somebody's here working on pottery. Well, that's the picture that Jeremiah is looking at. He's looking at this person working on pottery. And it says, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to whom? The potter, the person who's shaping it. And I want you to understand in this beautiful picture, God is the potter. He's going to tell Jeremiah that. I love what R.K. Harrison says. Quite frequently in the process of throwing the clay, some deflect in design, size, or structure would arise, some defect. The potter then would squeeze the developing pot into an amorous mask and recommence this task of shaping the raw material in some other suitable container. In other words, something went wrong, something deficient in the clay. He realized he couldn't accomplish with this piece of clay what he wanted to. He started over again, and he built something different as a result. And Jeremiah was impressed by the control which the potter exercised over the clay. Whatever the reasons for the dissatisfaction, he took the material and worked on it until it met his specifications. In the same way, God has absolute control over his people and will dispose their destiny according to his purposes. Isn't that beautiful? You know, my, my picture in my mind is this, that you and I, even in our failing, God says, okay, we got that issue, I'm gonna shift and build a little different design into you. But you know the goal and purposes of God for all of our lives is to make you and I like Jesus. So even though we sin, we can deviate, we can do all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, as you and I begin to yield again, God keeps working on us, he's continuously working us towards that ultimate purpose of becoming like his son Jesus. How powerful is that? Jeremiah 18.5, then the word of the Lord came to me. Now he's going to apply what he's seen. Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hands, Israel. Now, I think that's powerful. Just, just imagine for a moment tonight, today, you're like that piece of clay. Because really, we come from the dust, right? We're created. We're in a sense clay. God is molding our lives. And so I want you to see yourself in the hands of God today. That's where you really are, and God is shaping your life. Can you see yourself on the potter's wheel? God is shaping you. He's working at developing something inside of your life. Here we see that God ultimately determines our destiny. But we are also involved in the process, as we're about to see. Roland Harrison goes on to say, Jeremiah asserts the sovereignty or the control of God over all of humanity, though without the capriciousness associated with many earthly rulers. Now that word capricious is a kind of a fancy word. What it's really meaning is, you know, it means people who are impulsive and unpredictable. How many knows human beings? We have a hard time with being stable and consistent. Anybody know that, you know, who can find a faithful man, Proverbs says. We have a tendency to be a little bit inconsistent. Isn't that true? Anybody notice that? And you know, it's scary when people are impulsive and when people are unpredictable. You don't know what you're going to get. But you know, you can relax with God. God is predictable. He's unchanging. He's, he, there's a continuity with God. He's, he tells us what he's going to do, and then he goes and does it. He's able to carry it out. So he, God, God is governed. This is the part I love. God is governed 
by certain principles consistent with who he is. God, God is consistent with his character. God will never do something outside of who he is and his character. Isn't that beautiful? That's why Paul could say in one of his letters, God who cannot lie. Isn't that beautiful that I can, I can hang on to every word of God and say this is the absolute truth because God is consistent with who he is. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth. There's no falsehood in him. He said, examine my life, see if there's anything in me that's false. Nothing could be found. Beautiful. You and I can have such confidence. But here we see uh, the idea of... Uh, of God's, oh, sorry, let me go back here. The idea of freedom then needs to be understood. Let's go back and say this. Within the context that we're designed by God for a specific purpose, and a freedom, and the freedom we have is not either, it's either to fulfill God's will or not. In other words, what God has given humanity is freedom. But it's not, a, it's not a, like I can do anything I want to any place I want to. No, no, no. It's framed within the context of our human limitation, number one. Number two, it's framed within I either do God's will and purpose for my life or I don't. Are you seeing that? It's a freedom of choice. He's giving us you either do this or you don't do this. That's the freedom we really have. You know, a lot of people think they have freedom. You don't have as much freedom as you think you have. You're limited to your body. You're limited to, you know, where you are. You're limited to your abilities. You're limited to your opportunities. You're limited to your resources. I can keep going down and talk all the limitations we have. No, we have freedom, but it's limited, okay? But we all have the freedom of choice. That's what I'm getting at here. Now, some would argue there's a tension in theology today whether a person who rejects God's purposes even had the freedom to do that. There's a whole theological school that will talk about that. I'm not going to go there, but I'm going to say this. We do know that believers certainly have that option. Every believer in this room has the freedom to choose to do right. Yet, as we're about to discover, that nations can respond to God even though they're not in covenant with him. That's interesting to me, that God is holding every human being morally responsible for their decisions. So I think in some sense we do have a freedom. We do have some level of freedom to either follow God or not to follow God. We have that level, though some might dispute me, but I'll just go on to say this. Uh, what we're going to discover here uh, is God's gift in choosing a course of action. And let's take a look at verse 7. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn to repent, uh, to repent of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. In other words, God's saying, I'm not gonna just come to Israel. I'm gonna come to all kinds of nations and call them out on their behavior. And if they repent, even though I've told them I'm gonna destroy them because of their sin, if they repent, he says, I won't do it. You know, and really, we're gonna find out in a moment, that's, that, that actually happens. Verse nine, it says, if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted. Isn't that nice? How many like it when people say, well, you know, you're gonna do great things. You have such great potential. We can go on and on. Everybody loves to hear that stuff. But look what happens in verse 10. And if, if that nation does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. So I would argue that God has good intended for everyone, but some people choose not to follow God, and therefore they're negating or losing out on the good God intends. How many here say, I want everything God has for me? 
I want all the good God has for me. Then I need to be willing to walk with God in order to secure the blessings that he wants to give in my life. Now, Jeremiah saw that God's sovereignty was tempered by mercy and patience. As the potter carefully was reworking the clay to achieve the desired end, so God does not give up when we fail him. How many are thankful for that? Boy, I'm glad that he's a God of the second chance. You know, F.B. Huey goes on to say, especially in view here is God's right to change his will concerning a people in response to their behavior. If they should repent of evil, he has the right to forgive. If they should do wickedness and refuse to repent, he has the right to withdraw blessings. Now, I think the classic example is Jonah in the Old Testament. How many know the Assyrian Empire? They were, they were a bad crew. They were some of the most mean, malicious uh, people that lived, and they dominated other cultures. People were terrified of the Assyrians. I can tell you, if we were living in that day, you'd be scared spitless to be under their thumb. And so one of uh, Israel's mortal enemy was the Assyrian Empire, and the capital city was Nineveh. And God says to his servant Jonah, oh, by the way, Jonah, I want you to go up to Nineveh and preach that if they would repent, I'll forgive them and not destroy them. Guess what Jonah said? Thank you very much. I'm taking a trip to the Bahamas. But in his case, it was the Mediterranean. I'm going deep sea fishing. I have no interest whatsoever in going over there. It wasn't because he was afraid of them. He just didn't want them to repent. He did not want to give them a chance. He just wanted God to wipe them out. He didn't want to see any of these guys survive. So he said, I'm taking the boat out of town. And he did. He jumped on a boat, paid his own fare, the Bible says. Got in the boat. How many know God doesn't let us off the hook that easy. God went after Jonah. Big, big storm came up at sea. Jonah's in the boat. Everybody's terrified. All the sailors are panicking. This is a death-defying situation. What are we going to do? These are religious people. People in the ancient world were all religious. They're crying out to their gods. Nothing's happening. I mean, the storm's getting worse. Good old Jonah. He's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. They wake him up. What in the world? What are you, what's going on here? Do you see we're going to drown? Who are you? Well, I'm the prophet of the most high God. Well, we're about to die. Yeah, well, that's because God's upset with me. What? You're the culprit that's creating this problem for us? Absolutely. He says, if you want to get out of this jam, throw me overboard and everything will work out. How many know people are reluctant to just throw people overboard? So they started throwing everything else overboard. Finally, they got so desperate, they said, you know, God have mercy on us. And they threw Jonah overboard. Immediately, the sea stilled. Now, how many know at that moment, they go, okay, this guy was telling us the truth, and he's, this is serious stuff. Meanwhile, don't you love God? Meanwhile, God's prepared this big fish. He swallows Jonah. This is the first submarine ride that we record in history. I, that's what I noticed. And Jonah's inside the belly of this great fish. He's having, he's reconsidering his decision about not preaching to the Ninevites. He said, I should have listened to you, God. Would you give me another chance? God says, okay, I will. And the Bible says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. A big fish swims up to, out to the Mediterranean shore, spits Jonah out. Out comes this guy. He's a little bit bleached from being in the belly of this great fish. He's got seaweed on his head, and he's heading into town to preach to the Ninevites. Now, if he came into Red Deer, we'd probably move him up to room, whatever room, there in the hospital. We'd say, we're not listening to this dude, man. He's just really crazy. That's exactly right. But the Ninevites, they were paying attention because some of them probably were under conviction. You know, some of the stuff they were doing, he's, re he's re preaching. From the king, it says, all the way to the animals. Man, everybody was repenting. And Jonah got ticked off because God saw that they had repented and God decided not to punish them. 
And so in the fourth chapter, you see Jonah having a fit because he said, that's why I didn't want to come. I knew you were going to show mercy to these characters and I wanted them to get torched, right? See, that's the story. That's very powerful. What is that telling me? It's telling me that God is a God of all the nations, that if people will listen to him, it doesn't matter what country they come from, God will bless them if they respond to him. But if they refuse to respond to him, it's not a good situation. It also tells me that God is the one that sets up the moral boundaries of human beings. God is the one that determines what is right and wrong, not human beings. And if we're violating God's standards, you know what, we'll be punished for that. If we repent from our bad behavior, our sin, God will relent from that judgment. In other words, God is making you and I responsible for our actions, that there's consequences to our behavior. Isn't that interesting? However, if people persist in their evil, then they're responsible for the judgment that God will allow to come into their lives. And what we are seeing here is that God is then not uh, just the God of Israel, but of all of, hum of all of humanity. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. Though people cannot save themselves, they're still responsible for their actions and the ensuing consequences of their actions. So let's move on to the second thing we learn from this text. It's the consequences upon those who rebel against what they know is right, what they know is the truth, when they have light and they're turning to darkness. After instructing and warning, when people refuse to respond, all that's left is to be disciplined. And God's now about to discipline his people. It says here, Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, Look, I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. How many would like to have God saying, Yeah, I've got your future mapped out for you and it's not good? That's not a good place to be camped because, listen, God can initiate this stuff and it can happen. So he's warning them. Come on, you guys. You know better, but you're not listening to me. And if you don't listen, this is what's going to happen. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and reform your ways and your actions. God says, I don't want just words. I want, I want you to turn back and do the right stuff instead of the wrong thing. That's what the nature of repentance is all about. So they refuse. This is verse 12. But they will, they, but they will reply. It's no use. We will continue with our own plans and we will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Now, do you think they actually said these words to Jeremiah? I really doubt it. I think this is the essence of their response. Basically, they said, we're not paying attention to Jeremiah. We don't buy what he's saying, as we're going to see. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. We're fine. You know, we're just going to keep going in the direction we're going. They just did not buy what Jeremiah was putting down. Bad problem for them. Walter Brueggemann says it this way. And I think this is a powerful application of what's going on here. Now there was no more time for turning. Judah had waited too long. Judah, of course, had had freedom of choice. But that freedom had now been forfeited through sustained, that's a key word, resistance and stubbornness. The text is not interested in a rhetorical question of free will. Rather, it addresses the pastoral reality that resistance to God practiced so long eventually nullifies the capacity to choose life. What's he saying? If you and I keep resisting God, eventually we'll lose the ability to do the right thing. Our hearts get so hard, we just don't want it anymore. See, that's a danger when all of our lives, you know, we first start out and you have that little feeling, yeah, I should probably do the right thing, but you resist that feeling and you just keep resisting that feeling. Eventually it gets so hard, pretty soon you won't repent. You won't turn away. You'll, just, you'll start becoming more uh, dogmatic and more self-justifying for what you're doing. That's what he's talking about here. Then we read here, uh, 
In verse 13, he goes on to say, this is what the Lord says, inquire among the nation, who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Well, what, what's, been, what's, what's the shocking thing? Well, back in chapter two, he says, has a nation ever changed its gods? And the answer is, no, all these other nations, they continue to worship their gods, which are not gods at all, Jeremiah says, but my people have ex exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Never when we read that, we go, boy, those silly people from Judah, why would they do that? Why would they exchange the glorious God for an idol? Well, before you cast stones on the people from Judah, just remember, we do it all the time. Anything you and I put ahead of God is an idol. So let's not be too quick to point the fingers at the people from Judah. Maybe we need to take a hard look and say, hey, maybe I've been trusting something other than God in my life. Maybe I'm trusting in my abilities, my own human reason, my own abilities, my finances, whatever it is that we're putting our trust in over God. That's problematic. So then he goes on, he says, a most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Well, what's this horrible thing? Well, it's interesting he uses the term virgin because it speaks of a covenantal language. You know, it's a metaphor of husband and wife. And in this picture in the Old Testament, Israel was the wife and God was the husband. And they had been unfaithful to God. That's the horrible thing. Tremper Longman says it this way, virgin Israel is a term of continuing endearment. They have done the unexpected by worshiping false deities and refusing to repent. As a matter of fact, God's people had done the unthinkable. They had disregarded God, which is even contrary to what is natural and normal. Because look what Jeremiah goes on to say. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? And do cool waters from distant sources ever stop flowing? Now, these are rhetorical questions. What's the answer? No. Actually, if you go to Israel today, if, you know, some of us have gone, and we go up to the northern boundaries. We're right there where Lebanon starts. There's a place called Caesarea Philippi, right in that area. And that's the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's coming down from the Lebanon mountains. It's coming down from Mount Hermon. It's, it's the source of that river. Now, you have to understand something about Israel. We don't relate to it in Canada because we have an abundance of water, okay? But I want you to think about something. What happens today if our drinkable water dried up and we had no drinkable water right now? Would we be in a crisis situation? You know, we could only sustain life for so long without water. Water is the source of life. So when you're in Israel, number one topic when you talk to people from there, it's about water. And the only source of water for them is either it rains, you know, or the Jordan River. That's the source of water. So what is he really saying here? Well, we can summarize basically and say this. What is he saying? First of all, as Roland Harrison says, he said, the sense seems to be that the nation's sin is completely irrational in character. It's contrasted with the course of nature, which is steadfast and consistent. And we can say it this way, sin is irrational because ultimately sin is never in anyone's best interest. The person sinning, nor the people that they're being sinned. It's never, because when you sin against someone, you're diminishing yourself. That's what's happening. And you're ultimately making yourself at odds with God. Here we see from this example from nature, from Lebanon, the source of Israel's primary water supply. Water is the source that sustains life. It's unthinkable that God's people would abandon their only source of life. Isn't that interesting? 
But yet people do that all the time. Verse 15, yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols which made them stumble in their ways in the ancient paths. They made them walk in byways on roads not built up. So what does it mean to forget God? It means that they no longer worship God and they no longer obeyed God. That's probably the deeper point. Rather, they had embraced false substitutes. They had distorted their worship of God. They had syncretistic approach to worship. They had blended a lot of false ideas in. The result of this decision is that they simply left the ancient path and were now walking on roads not built up. In other words, they were deviating from a path that was well-known, well-marked. It was ancient. Others had walked on it. Now they were cutting across country on their own path. And now you know they're going to get into trouble. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Uh, Tremper Longman says this. The metaphor of the path reminds the reader of the two-path theology of Proverbs. This is the first time I've ever, I, I've read this in this, this commentary before, but it just didn't sink. But remember, years ago, I was preaching through Proverbs. What was I trying to get across? There's only two paths. You're either walking in wisdom or you're walking in fall. You're either walking in life or you're walking in death. You know, the Bible is trying to teach us there's only two ways. You're either obeying God or you're disobeying God. It's real simple. We're making it complicated. Look what he's saying. The path is actually the journey of life. Walking on the ancient paths would signify living according to Yahwistic tradition. And I just put living according to God's ways. We're actually doing what God wants. That's powerful. So, the result of this terrible choice is no longer walking with God, and therefore we can anticipate problems up ahead. Future devastation is coming. You're going to get lost, and you're not going to be able to find your way back not that simple. Jeremiah 18, 16 says, their land will be an object of horror and of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of disaster. You go, oh, what's happening here? Well, let me give you two things. One, they would now become an object lesson for what happens to people when they knowingly sin. When you presume on God's grace. You know, I, I, there's one statement I cannot tolerate. I'll tell you what it is. I will do this and ask for forgiveness later. That's presuming. That's a presumption. We should never think that way. We should never presume on God's grace. Don't ever go down that path. Okay, you, you just don't come like that. You can't come at it that way. That's a disregard for God. That's not honoring God. That's, that's about you doing your thing. Okay, don't go down that path. I would say this, you know what happens when you and I knowingly sin? People that are looking at our lives are shaking their heads and going, wow, that's sad. You become an object lesson, what not to do. Actually, the whole Old Testament is an object lesson for us. Think about it, Israel kept refusing to follow God. Aren't they an object lesson of what not to do? And then every once in a while you read, and this person followed God wholeheartedly. That's an object lesson of what to do. So we are taught both. Secondly, God will turn his back on them and allow them to suffer because they had forsaken him. Isn't that interesting? You know, when you and I don't repent, you know what we're doing? We're turning our back on God. And God goes, fine. But just remember, if you, you know, when, we, when we turn to God, I want to see his face, not his back. Because if God turns his back to us, that means that we're, we don't have favor. It's speaking of God's favor. Let the... You know, let's God's face shine upon you. God is looking at you. It's speaking of God's blessing and favor. You don't want God's 
judgment and discipline. That's what we're talking about here. And that's what they were involved in. Well, let me move on to the final thing. The conspiracy to discredit the message by discrediting the messenger. You know, there's a saying that says, don't shoot the messenger. I don't know if Jeremiah coined it. I doubt it. But we have that little statement, right? We've probably walked up to somebody to share something. We know they didn't really want to hear and say, hey, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just bringing the message, right? Can you, know, you can just imagine Jeremiah talking to God. God says, I want you to go over there and say this to these guys. Yeah, but you know, God, I've done this before and I know how they respond to it. They don't like me saying these things. You know, if this is a popularity chart, Jeremiah's really getting, he's in the minus decimals. I mean, he's in trouble. Nobody wants to listen to this guy, but he's bringing God's message. You know, let's think about it. Is the problem Jeremiah or is it the problem the people? It's the people. They don't want to listen. Jeremiah is just communicating what God is saying. Yeah, but I don't want to hear what God has to say. That's problematic. Here, uh, there were many people in Jeremiah's day that were actually saying they were preaching God's message. I want you to know it was a very religious culture. First of all, you need to understand that. So here's what's happening. You've got the priests in the temple, you've got other prophets, and you've got the sages or the wise men. They're all operating, and they're all saying a message for the vast majority. I would say Jeremiah is a small sliver, a very small minority voice at that time, okay? Everybody else is saying all of this. And so what, this is their response to the whole thing. They said, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah. For the teaching of the law by the priests will not cease, nor will the counsel from the wise or the word from the prophets. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. Well, what are they saying? Well, I like what Dr. Longman points out. He said, their reasoning is fascinating and often commented on because it seems to list three functionaries who are pivotal in teaching people the will of Yahweh. These three groups include priest, wise teacher, and the prophet. The priest is associated with the law and was charging the people from the law from the moment of, of the law's inception and the birth of the priesthood back in the days in Sinai. The wisdom teacher is associated with counsel, and finally the prophet has a word short for the word of the Lord. He goes on to say, as the people rejected Jeremiah and his message, they encouraged each other by saying, but we still have these vehicles of divine revelation. In other words, we don't need to listen to Jeremiah. We got the, these prophets over here, these priests over here, these wise men over here. Get rid of Jeremiah, and there'll still be a conduit to the divine. In other words, we still have an avenue to God through all of this. However, the broader context of Jeremiah leads us to believe that these priests, sages, and prophets are not legitimate. Rather, they say only what the people themselves want to hear. Oh my goodness, are we living in this? Think about it. every generation, we have the same challenge. I know that there's very godly ministers of the gospel preaching the Bible. I know that for a fact. But let me warn us all, and listen to what 2 Timothy 4 says, verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. That word doctrine means teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. Be careful. Be careful. Here's the warning. What's Paul telling us? What's, what, what are we being warned by Dr. Longman here? The fact that people could say, hey, there's other people out there preaching the Bible, and I like their message better than this. See, is it about what we want or is it about what God is saying? 
See, we have to decide, what do I want to hear? See, I, I am a lover of truth. I want to know what the Bible says. I'm serious about this. I want to hear what God has to say. And even if it hurts me, even if it corrects me, even if I go, man, I got to make some changes here because I'm not lined up with the Bible properly, I want, I'd rather hear that. Then have people tell me, hey, it's okay, I can do my thing and still serve God and he's going to bless me, blah, 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 blah. You know, and I'm going to go over here because that's the messaging I want to hear. We're warned against that. What does the Bible teach? Jeremiah continues to point out he's been faithful in declaring God's message, which in a sense is goodness. How many know when you're hearing the truth, that's a good thing? Listen to what he says here. Listen to me, Lord. Hear what my accusers are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? In other words, I want to tell you the two things that Jeremiah did. One, he told people what God said. Number two, he prayed for that nation, sobbing that God would not judge them. Isn't that beautiful? He interceded, said, God, please don't do what we deserve. Show mercy to us. And God said to him earlier in the series, God says, even if Moses was here, even if, you know, Elijah was here praying, I'm, I'm, or Job, or whatever one of the other prophets, I'm, I'm still, Samuel, I think it was, I'm, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to judge this generation. Wow. It says, listen to what, hear what my accusers are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for me. Literally, they did dig a pit. Well, that was already there. They just threw them in. Remember that I stood before you and spoke on, in their behalf to you to turn your wrath away from them. But now he's wounded. Now, how many know that when you and I have had good, we've been doing good for people, then they do evil to us? What's the temptation? Oh, boy. Lord, help me to be like you. But sometimes we're not always like him, right? We get a little wounded. When we wound, we lash out. Look at what he said. This is, now he's doing an imprecatory prayer. This was prayer. So give their children over to famine. So what is he saying? God, this was the covenant. They've broken it. Okay, now give them the curses of the covenant. Look, give their children over to famine. Hand them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives be made childless and widows. Let their men be put to death. Their young men slain by the sword in battle. That doesn't sound like a very happy camper praying that prayer to God. No. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring invaders against them, for they have dug a pit to capture me and they've hidden snares for my feet. But you, Lord, know all their plots to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sins from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you and deal with them in the time of your anger. Wow. That is a very intense moment. Now, how many go... It seems a little shocking in light of what Jesus said. What was Jesus? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How many go, Jeremiah, Jesus? Doesn't sound quite the same. Anybody see the difference? So how do we handle this? You know, it's really funny reading different commentators, you know, what their thoughts are. But I I really like, uh, and I agree with Robert Davidson. He says this, let us admit that that here Jeremiah is flawed. What's he saying? He's human, you know? Not merely in light of the cross, which means, you know, from the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them. But he says, but even in light of the deepest insights of the Old Testament, the servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah accepts suffering, insults, and opposition as a part of his redemptive mission in the world. Does everybody want to talk about? Let me go down to the next. This was how God was bringing health and wholeness to others. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Now, Isaiah 53, if I tell you that chapter, 
Who do you think that Isaiah's talking about? Jesus, right? It's a messianic chapter. But can I also tell you, it also applies to Old Testament people. So what he was basically saying was, listen, when people do wrong to you, don't do wrong back. That's what he was teaching them. He's saying basically this redemptive mission is only done when we overcome evil by doing good. That's what he was teaching. Now, how many know Jeremiah, however, when he was oppressed and afflicted, he opened his mouth. And how many can say, man, do I ever get in trouble when I open my mouth? Besides, anybody else? Okay, some of you, or you go, I don't say anything, Pastor. It's good, I'm glad you don't, but some of us probably do. But he opened his mouth and he screamed down curses from upon his oppressors. Flawed, yes, but for that very reason, more truly one of us. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, this guy's just like us. He, right here we see that, yeah, he's a man of God and he's saying the right things, but at this moment, this is the wrong approach. That's what he's arguing, and I agree with that. I think even godly people respond inappropriately at times. How many say that's true? That's true. One of the things we misunderstand is how God can be loving and also hate and be angry over sin. See, I'll tell you why. Because you and I have an image of human anger, and we, we attribute that behavior to God. See, I remember, you know, Aristotle described anger as this. Anger as a brief madness or an uneasiness or discomposure of the mind upon receipt of an injury with the purpose of revenge. What is he saying? He's ticked off and he's lost his cool. That's basically how Aristotle's describing anger, right? That's, and we see anger and we go, that's yeah, not that pretty, right? But I like, and I've never read this before, and it really impacted me this week. I read... Uh, I think a better understanding and approach of God's anger is defined by the third century church father, Lactantius. I had no idea who this guy was. I'd never heard of him, so I looked him up. You know who he is? He's the mentor and advisor to the first emperor, Roman emperor that became a Christian, Constantine. Pretty interesting. And this is what he says, this Lactantius. He says, God's righteous anger is a motion of the soul rousing itself to curb sin. Not to sin, but to curb it. That's a very profound insight. So he goes on to say, God's anger towards sin is never explosive, unreasonable, or unexplainable. It is never a force that controls him. Usually anger controls us, but never with God. It's not a ruling passion. Rather, it always remains an instrument of his will. His anger has not, therefore, shut off his compassion. It's amazing. God is doing everything he can to curb the sins of humanity. But when people repent, he shows compassion. Is that amazing? See, that's a different way of looking at anger. And I think it's the biblical approach. So what can we learn? I know my, I'm a minute or two over. But let's just stand as I close here. I think we're living in a world today terrified by conspiracies, I think we're concerned about a lot of things that are happening in our world, the evil in our world. Here's what I want you to learn today. Number one, who's in control of this world? Who? God is. Let's not live in fear. Let us live in faith. Let us remove all of our anxieties and fear and say, God, you're still in control of all these things. I think what I came away from this chapter is simply this, that God is behind everything that's occurring in our world, even though at times evil seems to be winning. We know God is in control and we do not need to live in fear. Like the prophet Jeremiah, 
if we do what God asks us to do, and we do good things, there will be times we'll be misunderstood and misrepresented. We will be rejected. We will be betrayed. We will be persecuted. All that live godly will suffer persecution. It'll happen. So how do I overcome the evil that's being rendered to me? Do good. Do good. That's the way to overcome it. We are responsible, number three, for our actions. God's anger is designed to curb sin. And he's long-suffering and does not respond without warning and impatience. That's, isn't that good news that God doesn't just go, that's it, I'm done. No, he's long-suffering. And he allows decades, sometimes centuries to go by before he disciplines. It, sometimes he does it quicker, other times slower. We must be willing to be corrected by God's word, number four. And not seek the soothing words of those who handle God's word to suit and justify our sin. To remain in sin is alienation from God and self-justification never serves us. And lastly, the choice before us is far simpler. There's only, really, the freedom of choice is between doing God's will or not. That's the simple choice. We have that choice all the time. And when we walk our own way, it's a road strewed with hardship and ultimately negative consequences. Walking God's way in the end, you'll be able to say, no regret. And I always say this. I said it this morning in my prayer partners. I said, you know what? I've never had a person come to my office, a pastor. I've served God for these 40 years and endeavored to do God's will every single day, and I live with regret. I've never heard that. But I've had a lot of people come to me and said, I've deviated from God's path. I've experienced all of these negative things in my life, and I rue the day that I deviated, and I'd like to get back on God's path. I've had that conversation with many people. So I want you to know he's a forgiving God. And so today with every head bowed, how many here say, you know, Pastor, I have to admit, there has been a lot of fear and anxiety inside of my soul. As I look in our world today, I just feel overwhelmed sometimes by the evil or the difficulty. And I, and I just sometimes allow fear and anxiety to rule me. And that's you. Maybe just raise your hand. I want to pray today. I want to pray that what we're going to do today is displace our fears and receive God, a confidence in God that you and I would say, you know what, no matter what comes in our world, God is greater than that problem. God is greater than my fears. I'm going to walk by faith. If God be for you, the scripture says, who can be against you? And maybe you're here today and say, you know what, I have to admit, I am tempted sometimes to justify myself. I'm saying don't do that. Better to come to God and say, Lord, I'm broken and I need to change. And I know change is difficult. Isn't that true? And a lot of times we're so busy trying to get other people around us to change. Why don't we stop focusing on all the others and saying, God, what is it in my life that you want to see, bring about change to? And I believe as we start yielding to the work of God's spirit, I want you to get that image in your mind of God right now. He's got you by his two hands. And you're that clay in his hands. And he's molding and shaping your life right now. Can you see it? That's your little vision right now. You're seeing the hand of God molding and shaping you. And let him design you into that person that he wants you to become. More and more like his son Jesus. That's the desire of the Father. To design, to design us into the nature and to conform us into the nature of his son. What a beautiful picture. So Father, I pray today that you would alleviate us from our fears. 
and that you would shape us more each day into the image of your son, Jesus. Help us, oh God. Help us, Lord, to look upon your face, Lord, and recognize that you are the one that's in control and you are shaping our lives. Help us to not live in anxiety. Help us to not live in fear. But Lord, help us to walk in obedience to your ways. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.